Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. According to a very recent survey of people in over 40 countries, 90% of respondents said their work lives were getting worse during the pandemic, and more than 60% felt that they were experiencing burnout often or very often. Even before the pandemic hit, burnout was already an emerging problem all across the globe. Burnout, according to the World Health Organization, is characterized by feelings of chronic stress at work that go unmanaged. And left unaddressed for very long, burnout can have very serious consequences for an individual's mental health and is a risk factor for depression, substance abuse, even suicide. While burnout may be one of the most talked about workplace topics these days, it sometimes seems as if we've all just come to accept it, as if feeling mentally and emotionally exhausted all the time characterizes 21st century work, and our best response is just to suck it up and move on. But I'm here to call BS on that kind of thinking and to make it really clear that when 60% of the world's workers say they frequently feel burnt out, that's not normal at all. So we've clearly reached this point in time when organizations and leaders must realize that the best cure for employee burnout is prevention, and that it's time for us to collectively support our people, and ourselves by the way, in ways that lead to human thriving and not meltdowns. So my guest today is Paula Davis, author of the new book, Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience, a book that provides actionable and science-backed strategies for leaders to use in creating cultures that promote resilience and well-being and inherently reduce employee burnout. Paula, by the way, left her law practice after seven years due to extreme burnout and went on to earn a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania simply in order to better understand burnout and help others prevent it. As part of her postgraduate training, she was selected to be part of the UPenn faculty teaching and training resilient skills to soldiers as part of the Army's comprehensive soldier and family fitness program. Penn team trained resilient skills to more than 40,000 soldiers and family members. That's a brief introduction for our guests. Let me give you a very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Paula Davis. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. I've been very much interested and excited to talk to you. And I think this is a really important topic right now. I'm certain that you are aware of that. And I think our audience is about to see the full impact of this as we open up businesses and we start to see people for the first time again. And you're going to get a sense of how well they're doing. I think in reading your book that the likelihood is not everybody's doing as well as they let on. But you became this burnout expert not because you're an academic researcher, although I think that's kind of who you've evolved into, but really because you experienced burnout personally. So I thought, let's get started by sharing your story. I'm always interested in how people get to where they get to. In your case, tell us what it was that influenced you to go down this path, starting with your experience as an attorney. Yes. So I spent seven years practicing law, and I love your first question, because this is the question that I'm asked most frequently, because I think people are just generally curious, because this was a hard right turn. And so (laughs) how did you go from practicing law to starting your own business and doing all of this work? And the answer is simply that I made my mess my message, and I burned out during what became the last year of my law practice. And so it was a very weird experience for me. I didn't 
really know what burnout was when I was going through it. And it was just this thing that kept evolving over the span of time that I was experiencing it. And it felt like I could see different points in time where the process just started to get away from me and started to get worse. And I knew that work had something to do with it, but I didn't know how to straighten all the pieces out and, you know, just kind of ended up in this state that, that by the time I was done, I was in really not a great place. And so just experiencing this constellation of chronic exhaustion and just being really ticked off at people and the world generally, which is not my personality at all, and just really annoyed with my clients. And my job was to help real estate developers and the organization that I worked for finish and do sophisticated real estate deals, you know, it's not good to be annoyed at the people who are coming to you no. and asking you questions. And that really led me to think, am I making the impact that I want to have in my organization? Is this what I set out to do with my law practice? Is this really what I want to continue to do? And the answer kept coming back, no. And so I decided to really take some time and think about pursuing an entrepreneurial type path. And so that became really where my focus turned, but it was because of burnout. So what I want to understand is you said my practice, but was your practice with an organization? Were you working for demanding bosses? Were you the demanding boss on yourself? So help us to understand what you think the causes were. Like, what's the root cause in your personal case? Because I have questions about it, you know, the definition of burnout in a second for you. But I, I'm interested in how you got where you got to. What were the influences that influenced you to become burnt out? Sure. I mean, some of it certainly was my own wiring. I call myself a recovering, people-pleasing, perfectionist achievaholic. And so if, if you trace me back to when I was five, you can see all of, the, all of those traits I just mentioned expressing themselves already um, in how my wiring was. And so that was certainly a constellation of traits that eventually caught up with me. But, but really, I mean, there was a big workload driver or root cause steering my burnout. So I was working in a corporate legal department doing real estate work for a retailer that was in an extreme growth mode. So they were looking to build out hundreds of retail stores over a period of, of time. And there were there were really only four of us lawyers who were working on these deals. And I, of course, happened to be staffed in what seemed like all of the hot areas of the country. And, and so really just not being able to keep up with my work. And also, you know, I was three years into my law practice when I switched over to, you know, working in-house in the corporate legal department. And so it was really jarring for me. It was very much a challenge to transition out of handling kind of pure legal matters for folks and into business clients asking me questions about like tax related consequences and things like that, that I didn't have much, if any experience in. And so there was such a learning curve on top of the fact that you've just got work coming at you constantly. There was a very potent combination that I really underestimated when I made that switch. Okay. So on a scale of zero to a hundred, what percentage of it was workload demanding learning curve and what percentage of it was the word salad description you gave yeah. me of 
<laughs> your self-imposed high expectations and perfectionism that brought this on. Yeah, my people-pleasing, perfectionistic, achievaholic traits. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I would say I would broaden it out, you know, because there were certainly workplace factors beyond just the workload and the, the learning curve piece. So I would say broadening it out to workplace component versus Paula component, I would say it was probably about 70% workplace component, 30% Paula component. And literally, I remember, so my last day of practicing law was June 24th, 2009. And I literally can take myself back to walking out of the building for a last time, walking to my car in the parking lot. And literally, I can still to this day remember feeling a huge weight lifting off my shoulders. So I, I knew that the bulk of it was workplace related. So physiologically, I had that experience also kind of walking out of the out of the place for the last time. Just to dig in this, because I, in this podcast specifically, but it just seems like in the course of the work that I do, that many of the people that I talk to and interact with are very high achieving people. And high achieving people tend to have this Paula component, as you mm -hmm. wonderfully described it, right? Yeah. And I can relate to that. And so I'm wondering if you think as we get into this, if the 30% was you, 70% was the true catalyst. But do you have any advice for the people that have this Paula component and tend to be just never stopping, never satisfied, always driving, driving, driving in terms of maintaining their own well-being? Yeah. And I mean, that's really a piece of the puzzle because for as much as we're going to talk about and as much as my book's thesis is really about the fact that we have to have a systemic conversation and take a team's approach to burnout, part of that does include us as individuals. So we're not eliminating that from the equation. We're just shifting the focus a little bit. But I talk to people about that all the time. And, and for me, it comes down to understanding your wiring. That's just how I describe it and how I explain it to people. So one of the concepts that I talk about in the book is to understand your rules or the research term is called icebergs, but your core values and beliefs about how you think the world should operate. And so if you're operating under the themes of if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself and failure is not an option and taking a break is a sign of weakness or laziness. If those are themes that you have developed, those are values and beliefs that you follow for whatever reason, you have to start to recognize how those things are interfering with your ability to lead the way you want to, develop relationships the way you want to, prioritize self-care the way that you need to, perhaps. And so, so those are oftentimes the spots or the places where I will talk to people about you have to understand kind of the themes your inner critic as I call it is saying to you when you're thinking about these topics and how overthinking and catastrophizing and different thinking styles can really wear you out and produce a lot of exhaustion so so there's a lot of places for people to think about but it's kind of those deeper level conversations that really matter so getting away from some of the basic self-care strategies into this examination of one's wiring becomes a really important component. That was wonderful. And I'm really glad I asked the question because I think sometimes, you know, people say, I just feel so burned out. Mm -hmm. And they, they lack the self-awareness to know that part of the accelerator is being pushed down by them, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. right? And I can relate to that. You get to a point of burnout and then you look for the causes instead of looking for the potential causes and dealing with them early on. Yeah. So thank you. I'm glad we dug into that. Yeah. You make the clear distinction that burnout is much more complex than feeling exhausted. So it's not just exhaustion. And and I loved you saying that you can't yoga or meditate your way out of burnout. Of course, I love that because I think 
and this isn't a criticism, it's just I think our first step in companies, particularly large corporations, is to do superficial things to help people with their problems. And so, you know, we're going to give you a meditation app and some yoga classes and your burnout should disappear. So I want to level set our audience before we go forward, which is to ask you, what's your overarching definition of burnout and what are its primary causes? Sure. So I define burnout as the manifestation of chronic workplace stress. And I think Part of the reason why we go the individual route is it's an individual expression of a workplace problem. And so we focus solely on the individual piece, as you mentioned, to the exclusion of what's really causing it or what's really driving it. And so the simple equation for what causes burnout is an imbalance between your job demands and resources. So you have too many job demands. So the things that take consistent effort and energy about your work. When I do in-person workshops, I ask people to actually do this, to talk about this. And they can usually list 30 things in about two minutes. And then what are the resources? What are the energy giving and motivational aspects of your work? And that's oftentimes a more effortful conversation for folks to have. But when you when you really look at what the research really points to as some of the core causes, certainly workload tends to bu- bubble up to the top for folks. And when I've had a chance to actually measure the causes with teams, that's almost always the top one, if not second cause that's driving a sense of stress and burnout for teams. But it's also things like lack of recognition. So that could be not hearing thank you enough. That could be, gosh, I'm not getting any positive feedback or it doesn't seem like people are noticing that I'm doing a good job. That could be I feel like I'm doing work at a certain level, but my title doesn't match it. So that expresses itself in a number of different ways. But lack of leader and team support. Like, I just don't feel like people have my back. I don't know who my internal kind of support system is. It's things like values disconnect, meaning that I love this work and I expect certain things to come from my work, but my environment isn't really reciprocating or giving me that. And then it's also a sense of unfairness. There's favoritism going on. There's unfairness, arbitrary decision-making. People aren't being transparent. I'm not kept in the loop with my work. And then low autonomy. So I don't feel like I have a lot of flexibility. I don't have a lot of say and choice in what, what I'm doing. And unfortunately, it took a pandemic, I think, for people to realize that the autonomy piece of the equation is really important. And when you give people some measure of flexibility, it can really do good things in terms of motivation and engagement. But those are really kind of some of the main core causes of burnout. And so when you unpack it and talk about it at that level, you can see how, you know, like a yoga program or a meditation app or other self-care practices and tools that are really important just are mismatched and not applied correctly when you're talking about causes of that type. You know, it's interesting to me that everything that you listed, for the most part, has to do with feelings, Mm. feelings that people have, right, Mm -hmm. that are negative, that if leaders are having good conversations with their people and they're tapping into how are you feeling about things, they're going to know whether they feel underappreciated or whether or not they're understood and valued and growing and, and all the different things that are pain points for people that could contribute to feelings of burnout. So are you in agreement with that? And what's the remedy? Like, what would you advise leaders to do to help their people minimize or really keep any potential burnout in check? So I do like that sentiment. And I think you're definitely on the right track with that. And I think that one of the things that I'm hearing so much in our, in all of these, you know, back to work conversations or future of work conversations is how important 
people are trying to express that, you know, I want you to know my whole person. I don't want you to just know sort of workplace Paula or how I am at work. I really want you to understand how I function in the world and ask questions about my family because I'm a human being and I'm bringing all of that to the workplace. And I think we have felt so shut out from being able to kind of bring those pieces of ourselves to work. And so I think that type of conversation is going to become even more critical for leaders to know and to understand. But what they also have to understand are the key resources that we know can mitigate burnout or create more of a positive culture, create the kind of environment that really slows burnout down. And a lot of it is simply the opposite of what I just talked about. So, you know, it's prioritizing relationships, it's giving people that in-time feedback, it's making sure recognition is a priority, it's being transparent, it's looping people in on decisions that impact their role and their work directly. And generally what it boils down to is not such huge things that folks have to do, but we oftentimes just don't recognize that these types of things really, really matter to us from a psychological standpoint and certainly from how we perceive our work environment standpoint. Amen. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm the person who is, you know, saying hallelujah because of COVID. And I know that sounds perverse, but it, it really has to do with the fact that it's just changed our consciousness. Yeah. You know, how could you ignore what's going on in people's lives if you're managing people that are working remotely? I mean, it's all interspersed and it's all interrelated. And if you weren't compassionate and empathetic to that and demonstrating that to people, you failed over the past year. And I'm predicting that there's going to be a rather sizable number of people who quit their jobs when the opportunities arise here in the next six months to a year, simply because, you know, managers didn't step up and align themselves to what these needs were. So I totally agree with you. Yeah. You know, I was reading your book. It made me think about my father. And so this is a guy who was an executive vice president with General Electric. He mm -hmm. traveled all over the world. So he had a really big job. But when he was home, you know, he'd come home on the train at night. He didn't have a BlackBerry or an iPhone, right? It was the minute he got on the train, it was read the paper, relax, come home, have dinner, do whatever it is you want to do to relax, and then go back to work the next day. And he would stay late on Friday nights with the intention of clearing his desk. But he played golf every Saturday and Sunday. Like, that was his life. And, you know, he hung out at the country club, and he wasn't doing work. And, you know, it wasn't to say that there weren't times where he wasn't reading reading reports or writing reports, there was certainly overlap. But compared to what we have today, all of us, regardless of the level that we're operating in our organizations, have blurred the lines completely, right? I mean, there's just simply no segmenting any longer of personal life and work life. It's all just this blend. And so and I thought, you're going to be the perfect person to ask this to. I mean, do you think that organizations need to do more to establish boundaries, like work time start and end boundaries that are really clear and respected so that people know that their day ends and they're not going to be called in for a quick call or have to respond to emails or text. I mean, is the genie out of the bottle or can we save ourselves here? Oh, that is such a great question. <laughs> it's a long one, sorry. No, 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 no. It's so, I think it's complex, right? What you're talking about is a lot of psychology, a lot of neuroscience, a lot of 
of just habits that we've developed over a long period of time and all of which I think are going to be hard to reverse. Do we have to start to try? I think absolutely yes, because I mean, I think if the pandemic has shown us nothing else is that we can't exist over a long period of time in a functional, healthy, sort of prioritizing our well-being, not getting completely stressed out way without some semblance of boundaries in our day. And there's studies showing that we're working certain percentages of time longer during the pandemic because work is always in our environment. We don't have our commutes anymore. And so there's nothing to kind of generally break up our day. But I will tell you, I'm digging into a book by Cal Newport's latest book, A World Without Email. And I don't know if you've read it yet, but it's one of those books that I highly recommend to people because, first of all, the title is very capturing. But he does a fantastic, if you've read any of his other books, he does a fantastic job of stringing together good arguments. And my lawyer brain always goes toward, you know, is this a sound argument about a particular topic? And he's really arguing that a lot of our kind of problems with lack of boundaries and always onness and the ideal worker standard and all of that really started to arise when email came along. And it makes our lives easier in so many different ways because we have quick communication. But what it creates is what he calls this hive mind where we're constantly buzzing. Our brains are having to shift constantly between answering a communication and trying to do our work and trying to do other things. And that's not how our brain is evolutionarily set up to function. I'm just a little ways into the book, but he's really laying out some compelling data and argument around how we have to start to think about this constant communication that we have set up in our workspace. And I think that's one area that at some point we're going to have to look at and tackle because I see it as a root and a connector to so many other issues and causes. And so obviously not an easy conversation or topic to tackle within the world of work, but I think we're really going to have to start having those types of conversations if we want to get back to some semblance of effectiveness and decent productivity and certainly related to the burnout conversation. I'm completely with you and think that sometimes it seems so unwieldy, you know, it's like unwinding a hose, you know, that's all in knots and you just think, I'm going to leave that for somebody else. But I also think that Facebook, when it came out, the dopamine hits of getting likes also sort of, you know, reinforced our interest in, oh, let's just see, are there any new emails or any new texts? You know, so we're kind of motivated that way. But I had Martin Lindstrom on the podcast recently, and he is doing this. Like he went into one organization and just eliminated the CC and reply all button on email and cut the emails in half in this one major organization, you know, like a world global major organization. And, you know, so it's not to say that if you want to copy everybody on email that you couldn't find a way to do it, you might have to type in their names and take an extra minute. The higher you go in organizations, people think you need to know. And some of the stuff that they're replying to and sending you is like, I don't need to see this, but you have to open it to determine that. And it's just a complete time waster. And so I just love that he looked at it that way. But I'm with you. I think we haven't really put the pieces together here. And I agree that email is is one of the components, although certainly not all of the components, but really great answer. So thank you. Mm -hmm. So it might be illogical to assume that people who tend to burn out work for large companies. You know, I don't know why 
I, I make that as an assumption that everybody believes that. And then it's all driven by a demanding boss. But you found, this is sort of amazing to me, that 50% of doctors are burned out, 96% of senior leaders feel burned out to some degree, teachers, lawyers, even a huge percentage of technology workers are burned out. So I don't know who it is that isn't burned out. If you have some, let me know, right? But have we gone mad? Like, have we just accepted this? <laughs> so I think we're still way under-researched in terms of getting our arms around the problem from an, an empirical standpoint. And so the profession or the industry that's really leading the way in terms of what we know about burnout at an empirical level is healthcare. And so there have been consistent studies done year after year, and the percentage of physicians and providers generally that report that they're experiencing burnout has continued to rise. And so I think it's important for people to know that. I think one of the messages that I try to make clear to the folks who I talk to is that COVID did not create this problem. This was a big problem leading up to COVID. And I think because of what COVID has forced us to do and how it's forced us to live and work has accelerated us seeing some of the ramifications of what that looks like and now maybe being willing to have a conversation about it. But really, I tell people if anywhere that there is work, right? So if you go back to the formula of too many job demands and too few resources, Wherever that exists, there is the potential for burnout to potentially happen. And so it doesn't matter what profession or industry you're talking about. Initially, if you wind the the dial back to when, you know, a lot of burnout research started to happen in earnest, which was the late 1970s, early 1980s, it was really focused in what they considered the helping professions. They thought it was simply just the manifestation of people giving too much and people in roles. Too much care. Yeah, like healthcare and things like that who just simply didn't say no and didn't have kind of that off switch. And as the research evolved, it became very clear that there's really not an industry that escapes it. I don't know if you've read Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, but one of the things that he hinted at that I ended up going on to doing a little bit more research into for an article that I wrote was that mental health care costs are about to eclipse physical health care mm. costs in companies. So that's going to get their attention. Yes, it's going to get their attention in a big way. And I think other things that if you're not convinced by just some of the baseline statistics and industries and all of the research kind of showing why and the causes and things like that, there's also a fantastic business case why leaders and organizations need to be paying attention to this because burnout is associated with turnover intention and turnover costs and low morale and low engagement and critically safety and errors, right? Safety issues and errors. And so I think that's another reason why healthcare has been so earnest in examining the issue because there's a number of studies talking about the association between surgeons making errors and their rates of burnout. And it's not, they don't have to be wildly burned out. You know, they've noticed that there is a one point increase in certain aspects of their burnout score leading to higher rates of errors just by virtue of a one point increase in a score. And, and so that's why I'm also too very much looking at trying to build out the same sort of research efficacy within the legal profession, for example, because critically lawyers have to be on point and on their game and, and making errors can result in a whole host of negative consequences and malpractice insurance claims and things like that. So so there's very much a strong business case for folks to be paying attention to with burnout. So let's talk about solutions. You talk about the world-famous Mayo Clinic. 
they've taken this holistic approach to reducing burnout, which I found absolutely fascinating. So somebody there figured this out and said, we've got to be the leaders. We've got to make sure that we're walking our talk here. This is kind of my interpretation. Mm -hmm. And they've really become a model for other organizations to emulate. So tell us what they're doing and why they actually sort of fits into what you just mentioned. They actually have one of the lowest turnover rates in America as a result of what they're doing, connecting burnout to employee satisfaction and engagement. So it seems like they're doing something brilliant. So tell us what they did. Yeah. So in, in addition to having a low rate of turnover, they also have a lower, much lower than average rate of burnout. And they've actually been able to see their burnout kind of reverse itself, whereas most organizations within healthcare are seeing increasing rates of burnout. And so, I mean, it really gets back to some of the themes that we're talking about in terms of their willingness, first and foremost, to kind of assess the problem, right? That's really part of the starting point is we got to get our arms around this and really really get a sense of what's going on and how are people within teams experiencing work. And so it's kind of putting some data around it. And then also really acknowledging and not shying away from having those discussions around the causes that we were talking about, right? Really acknowledging, you know, the workload issue and the lack of autonomy and the lack of support and things like that and prioritizing those critical needs that we all have when we are at work. I call them ABC needs in the book, but your autonomy, belonging, and feeling like you're growing and developing as a professional and feeling a sense of connection are like water to plants when it comes to our sense of motivation and well-being at work. And so not only that, though, they're really focusing on leadership development, giving a lot of tools in this space to leaders and giving them runway and latitude to deploy the tools that they need to, right? So they're really educating leaders, but then giving them funding and, again, latitude to be able to implement and try out and redesign units and teams and things like that. So what we know are more sticky types of solutions can actually be embedded and start to be baked into kind of how their teams and how their culture really operates. And so they're also pretty good at selecting and developing leaders. And so a lot of industries that I work in are not. The leadership conversation either isn't prioritized or you reached certain metrics for a long time in your career. Therefore, we will make you a leader, you know, without any sort of thought to what that means and giving them resources and coaching and tools to really be able to make this happen and to to be implemented. So it's been fascinating for me to watch their journey. I want to ask you, you know, sort of to help define what you think. So if you were hiring a group of managers so in other words, on a go forward basis, if you were hiring managers and you started to think about, OK, what are the qualities that we need going forward? You know, so it can't just be people that are getting good numbers. It's mm -hmm. got to be something more. My belief is that caring is the sort of broad umbrella of the elements that we need in leadership going forward, because people don't feel cared for in every dimension, you, there's nothing you can do to influence them to perform for you very long. I'm curious as to whether you agree with that and, and more specifically, like what would you be looking for? Like what are the qualities beyond being able to drive performance? So people get concerned when I say this, that I'm losing sight of the fact that there's a bottom line orientation of leadership and we got to drive performance. You always have to drive performance. It's just a question of how you do it. So mm -hmm. what's your prescription? I would say very much in agreement with you, very much more so I think what 
folks might call heart-based skills or soft-based skills. I hate both of those terms because I think they devalue the importance of what I'm about to say. But I think, and I get the bottom line argument, of course, we're not eliminating that. But I think you have to have leaders who are just interested in people that they're curious about. So curiosity, curious in the ways that people work, what's important to them, how they live their lives, what matters to them, and asking those questions. And not only just asking the questions, but hearing the responses and then really doing something to implement it. I think it's also about empathy. I know that's a big term that folks are talking about now in leadership mm-hmm. circles. And a colleague of mine coined the phrase humble curiosity. And that's how I think of empathy. So, so many times as leaders, we are focused on sort of winning or fixing the situation, right? We're listening to fix a problem or we're listening to win or to gain some sort of upper hand or what have you. And we don't listen to learn enough. And so again, kind of dovetailing on that first piece, you know, really somebody who's interested in that, you know, kind of putting myself in another person's shoes sort of aspect and and getting to know what they're about. I think kindness is huge. Somebody who has, you know, that sort of lens. And so, I mean, all of this falls under the as you mentioned, the umbrella of caring. But I think it is, you know, it's interesting whenever I ask people, and we did this exercise in my work with Army drill sergeants, but I've extended it. And I ask this of people in a lot of different industries. And I ask them, think of somebody who was a mentor to you or someone who you considered to be a great leader. What traits did they have? And not one person has ever said they made their numbers and they maximized the bottom line. Mm-hmm. It's all mm-hmm. <laughs> they cared about me. They helped me out. They you know, got me out of a jam. They gave me flexibility when I needed them to. I felt like I was important to them. You know, they created a meaningful work environment. I felt like I could really be myself around them. It's all stuff like that. And it's interesting how everybody says that. But then we go in a completely different direction when looking at who to hire. I know. Right. right? Yes. Because we don't support that in business. I mean, that's one of the big problems is that we think we have to be like, I'm actually interested to hear whether or not drill sergeants are moving away from barking and yelling at these 18 year old kids or not. That seems completely antithetical to getting people to, you know, to thrive. But having spent most of my career in corporate environments, people said, well, how did you lead that way and succeed? And I said, well, I never told anybody what I was doing. I just did it. So, you know, it's not like anybody ever looked under the hood and said, oh, he was an empathetic and caring and really supportive manager. People could feel that. And by the way, you know, when you talk about soft skills, which is a term I absolutely hate because they're not soft, they're hard for people to learn. Um, But heart-based skills, I'm actually okay with. And the reason is, of course, this is the lead from the Heart Podcast, but, you know, there's science that shows that the heart and the mind are connected and that the heart is sending signals, actually more signals to the brain than the brain is sending to the heart. And that has huge influence over how we feel and whether or not we're feeling supported and whether or not we're feeling like somebody cares about our circumstances, the empathy that you just described, that's actually affecting hearts in people, not just, you know, not just their minds. And so when we say that, I think it actually, we've gotten to a point now where we can have a grown-up conversation and say, it's okay to use heart-based skills because 
they actually affect us as human beings in a really profound way. Well, I think, I, yes. And I, and I think that we've gotten away from or we've forgotten, and maybe the, hopefully the pandemic is getting us back around to this, is that we're human beings and we've, we've sort of turned ourselves into functional workplace robots of some sort. And now, now we're seeing the humanness of our situations being expressed in a number of different ways over the past year. And I hope we don't get away from that. And I wanted to just, to your drill sergeant comment, no, they haven't gotten away from barking at, the 18-year-olds who are getting off the bus and joining their units. But I will tell you, and I didn't go into this story a ton in the book, but I made reference to it. And I remember sitting with a soldier friend of mine who was on the training team with the work that I did with the military. And he's become just a dear friend and honorary family member of mine. And, and we were talking and I remember him during one of our programs, you know, we're just sitting in the back as instructors listening to what's going on. And he just had this profound like aha moment of how frequently he was leading out of fear, how he was instilling fear in his troops and how he thought that was the appropriate leadership style as somebody who commanded troops and was in charge and how he realized how it was so misplaced and that he wished he had been leading in a way that would have promoted more respect for a longer period of time versus that fear-based piece. And I think that leaders today in different organizations have that mentality. It's like, you know, I can just, I can sort of lead out of fear and I can lead in a way that's just going to make you do something and people will do it because they want to keep their jobs. You know, in the short term, it will work, but in the long term, you're going to pay some serious consequences for it. And so, so I really hope that what we're talking about in terms of the types of traits that I think will become more important, really have always been more, it has always been important, but will be particularly emphasized going forward, really happen and start to make their way into these conversations. Well, it goes back to your question of, I hope it doesn't change or revert to the old ways when we go back to, to the offices, you know, but I think hearts have memories. And, you know, if you go back after being cared for while you were working from home and that suddenly disappears, I think you're going to notice it really quickly. Sure. So there'll be repercussions for it. But I actually think it's actually more satisfying to connect with people that way, you know? So the people who thrived as a manager in this environment thrived because they were thoughtful about, is this a good time to talk to you? I know you've got kids at home. Mm -hmm. I know you have a spouse who's working. You know, is this work for you? Just that's a question instead of just saying, hey, where are you on this, Paul? You know, when are you going to get me the report or whatever? I mean, that conversation can't exist any longer. And I'm hoping that people realize that they're having more deeper and more meaningful conversations with people and their relationships with people is more trusting. You know, there's all sorts of benefits that could have come from this. It's going to be interesting to see how many people felt that they got that, you know, in that whole experience. I think one of the most profound things that you've discovered in your research is that teams are the key to burnout prevention. And, and also when teams are vibrant and collaborative and cooperative and feel good about each other, that they thrive. And so tell us from a leadership perspective what you learned and what we should understand from that. Yeah, this has been really in the last just handful of years how my work has evolved. And again, just as I have been initially in the early stages of my business and my career, really working with a lot of individuals and focused on a lot of individual strategies, what I would hear when I had a chance to talk to people one-on-one is just the influence that their teams had on them and just the organizational environment generally. And that really started to influence how I was thinking about these topics, quite honestly. And I just got really interested in exploring more about 
how teams operate and why teams are important. And I think in so many industries, there are teams and teams exist and we do so much work in teams, but we don't necessarily team well or know how to team necessarily. We're just kind of a collection of folks. And so when it came down to thinking about how could that help from a burnout standpoint to our earlier conversation, I knew that taking just an individual approach wasn't going to be enough. But walking into an organization and saying, hey, organization, you have to change in order to make this happen is also going to be a tough sell too. So I was trying to think where in the continuum can I see the best entry point where I can talk to individuals, where I can talk to leaders, and I can talk to kind of the system collectively. And for me, the answer became pretty clear that Teams was really going to be a powerful entry point to be able to do that. So I can talk to all of those constituencies. And I think of Teams as little mini systems or little mini cultures within the big organizational culture. And I thought if we can get all of the little mini system component pieces kind of marching in the right direction, that will have a ripple effect in terms of how the organizational culture at large will be influenced. So it's been fun to see how that's you know, manifested. Why do you think we don't team well? And what does well teaming look like? or good teaming look like? Yeah, I think that, and I think it depends on, you know, industry and organization and things like that. I think that there are highly functioning and good teams in a lot of places. And I think some of it is leader dependent. And I don't know that we take the time when we come together as a group to think about, you know, what are we doing? What do we expect? What do we hope to get out of this experience? You know, what is the project that we're working on? And what is the end result? What do we expect to have happen? What are the strengths that each of us have that we bring to the table? And how can we leverage those things? We're not having, I don't think we take the time at the outset of projects to have those conversations. And they don't have to take long. And the hard part too is that We team oftentimes at work consistently, meaning that we may be part of a team of a handful of people for one project, and then we disband and reform with a different group of people to take on project number two and disband and continually sort of restart the process a lot, depending on, again, industry and organization and project and things like that. And so it's just we kind of like we go apart and we come together without sometimes that intentionality behind it. Do you like, you know, managers having their team put together values and come to a clear understanding of like, how do we want to operate with one another and how do we want to support each other? I mean, we've had Amy Edmondson on the podcast a couple Mm -hmm. of times and we've talked about psychological safety being one of those key components. I love the word intentional. And so I'm asking you really drill down that a little bit more into the intentionality of getting people on the same path and place so that when they're working well together, they kind of know what the ground rules are. Yeah. And it's that constellation of what you just talked about is especially important in this virtual environment. So I've read some interesting studies and papers about, you know, how do we create the sense of cohesion and connection and trust in a virtual world? And it's very hard. And one of the consistent themes is that you're talking together and regularly about your team's common purpose, because when we're geographically diverse, which a lot of us are, you know, regardless of whether there's a pandemic and, you know, there's just, you know, time zone differences and language differences and culture differences. It's easy to kind of focus and fixate on the differences rather than what is our team meant to be doing together and what's our team's common purpose. 
like regularly and consistently when the team comes together, reminding them of what that is, talking about what that is, when it starts to go maybe a little sideways, having that discussion about, you know, here's an important value or strength that our team espouses to you. It doesn't seem like we've been following that, you know, let's have a conversation about it. But that act of really re-fortifying what's the common purpose is one of the best ways to kind of defeat those differences and build that sense of trust and cohesion. I love that, re-fortifying. Sometimes it's redefining because you get new people on the team and they have no grounding in it. And so this has to be sort of a, a sustainable event. Like once a quarter, everybody gets together and say, how are we doing as a team and what's working and get some really honest feedback because having had great success in managing teams, the common denominator is that people love being on the team. (laughs) You know, they love being with other people that happen to be on our team. So we attracted the right people. We honored what people were doing and soliciting ideas from them. They had great joy in seeing other people succeed within the team. There were a lot of really joyful kinds of experiences. And of course, we've all been on teams where none of that existed. And it's tedious. You know, 100%. Absolutely. And, you know, that's when you start to see, I think, some of the exhaustion start to happen. And then people start to become a little cynical. And then you can see some of these dimensions of burnout start to take hold when that happens. Yeah, that's another fabulous point. Because also, from my experience, the people that I just described were incredibly hardworking and high performing, but they were energized. So, right? And that was the offset to the burnout. So I I don't recall anybody ever coming to me and saying, you know, I'm doing really great work, but I'm completely burnt out. I think there was just this excitement about doing the work, being in with those people, seeing how far they could go. All those elements are an offset to, and I don't want to give anybody a prescription to say that you can prevent burnout by challenging people to do great work. I'm really taking your advice, which is to say that the cohesiveness of a team and having people that work well together and collaborate and cooperate with each other who are really there for one another can indeed be an offset to burnout. Yes, without question. That's a great way to put it. Oh, well, there you go. All right. So that doesn't happen often, so I appreciate it. So this other Microsoft survey just recently, 150,000 global workers confirmed that what was lost in this past year was connection with other people. And then I coincidentally just saw another major research paper performed by one of the largest architectural firms in the world. And what they found was that collaboration fell off greatly. So people working from home just thought, well, I got to do it myself. And so they weren't interrelating with other people on their team to get work done, or they weren't really thinking about other people as much. So this is sort of an entry to getting your point of view on something you just talked about, which is we have lost connection and we're going to continue to be in a remote world, even if people are coming into the office two or three days a week. How do we sustain connection in a virtual world? First of all, we have to make it a really important priority. And so this is something I have a pretty strong opinion on. And so I think that we have to do a delicate balance here because I think we 
also need to preserve the flexibility and the autonomy that people have also gained by by having that measure of being able to say yes or no to things and you know here are the days that I'm you know going to work specific hours and things like that and it's okay if I'm doing the laundry at two in the afternoon and I work best at 10 o'clock at night and that's that's fine I think that flexibility needs to be preserved but I hope we don't swing too far in that direction without really taking to heart the fact that Things like, you know, just feedback and reviews and mentorship and onboarding and just generally, I like being around my colleagues and they're a huge measure of support for me, really is frustrated, if not really difficult to do almost altogether in a virtual world. And that recognizing that innovation and bouncing ideas off of each other and walking to the water cooler together and let me stop by your office so we can, you know, just brainstorm on the way to the meeting really carries significant value with it. And so I hope we don't engineer out connection. I think that's one of the things that we're going to find when we shift back into the hybrid world is how critical that piece is. And so I'm hoping that leaders and folks and organizations take that to heart. In addition, you know, one of the pieces that I put in my book was about loneliness. And I don't think that's a front of mind topic for a lot of leaders and people who run organizations is thinking about the loneliness issue that might exist at work. But it's really big and it's really there. And how we perceive our connections becomes a really important piece of our workplace happiness and motivation and well-being puzzle. And so we just really have to make sure that the human connection conversation is as critical as some of these other pieces of the puzzle that we're talking about when we move back into whatever work is going to look like, because we really just can't engineer it out. Man, hallelujah. I am in such agreement with you. And occasionally I'm tweeting out information that sort of hints that I'm not the biggest fan of working from home Mm -hmm. on a permanent basis. I think that there has to be a sufficient balance so that people truly get the connection that you're talking about, because it really boils down to emotional well-being and whether it affects loneliness or whether it affects burnout or engagement or just overall happiness. It all boils down to the fact that we human beings are hardwired to need that connection with other people and we with or without it. I think that people are completely underestimating how they're going to feel when they go back and see their colleagues for the first time. I think there's going to be like these massive hugs. And yeah. like, Please don't go. You know, <laughs> I think it's just going to be this, this catharsis that people are like, oh, my God, I didn't realize how much I missed you. You know, I, I really think that's going to happen. So it'll be interesting. But thank you for your confirmation around that. It makes me happy to hear it. Just because there may be people listening to this that are experiencing burnout or are close to burnout, what advice do you have for them to unwind it since you did it? The first thing, and I would say the main thing, and this is something I didn't do that I wish I would have done, and so it's part of the reason why I lead with this, is to say something. And I recognize that that might not be the easiest thing to do because there's still quite a bit of stigma around, and I certainly experienced it. I didn't want to out myself as somebody who felt they were burning out. I didn't even know that I had a language to maybe articulate what I was feeling at that time. Um, But to, to say something, and whether that is to a coach, whether that is to somebody who you do trust and respect within your organization whether that's an HR person or your direct leader or a trusted colleague or a family member or a healthcare provider is to say that and to really become familiar with 
what burnout is and what it means so that you can be very intentional about how you talk about it. Because sometimes people will actually be feeling burned out, but they'll just say like, I'm just really stressed. And that tends to be dismissed. It was dismissed for me like, oh yeah, take Friday off. Or, oh yeah, you know, we're all, aren't yeah. <laughs> we're in busy season. We're all stressed, you know, kind of a thing. And so being able to articulate and distinguish what you mean when you say I'm burned out, I think becomes important. And that's part of why I'm so passionate about educating leaders about what this is so that they know that it can be extraordinarily dismissive to tell somebody who's experiencing chronic exhaustion, cynicism, and feeling a sense of lost impact that to take a Friday off is something that's going to to really help. All good. <laughs> yeah. So what's the advice to leaders who are on the other side of that equation? Since you said that you didn't have those conversations, but had you had a conversation, what would you have wanted a coach or your manager to have done? Sure. And, and so I will say that I led with what I was hoping would be an appropriate solution. So when I finally did have a conversation with my boss, who was phenomenal, but I had it way too late in the process. I was really in bad shape when I approached him and talked to him. But I said, you know, look, I'm overloaded on real estate deals. It's an area that I'm not really finding all that enjoyable anymore, but I'm in a corporate legal department. You guys are doing such amazing things and different types of work. Can I start to do some other types of work or projects or expand my expertise in another area of law because I just needed something to reinvigorate me at work? And he thought it was great. The powers that be above him did not and said, no, we need her to continue doing real estate deals. And so it seemed like whenever I proposed a solution for what I thought might help, the door got closed for me. And so really understanding and working with someone in terms of how they can try out a different path and really be open to to hearing what a potential solution might look like and that you may have to co-create it and it may look a little bit different than what you thought For some people, it might truly mean I need a sabbatical, like I need to get myself out of this environment for a period of time longer than a week or a day. And so really honestly being open to putting everything on the table in terms of what it might look like, because if if you value talented people, you want them to stay at your organization and to work with them in terms of what that could look like. And conversely, in your scenario... You know, the walls kept coming in harder and harder. Nope, get back to work. Nope, get back to work. Nope, keep doing the real estate deals. And at some point you have to impute that this isn't going to be the environment for me, right? So I'm going to have to make a change in order to not have the circumstances that contribute. I know that's sort of the worst case scenario, but that's exactly what happened to you. That is exactly what happened to me. And and I always tell people I'm the exception rather than the rule. And from now coaching a number of people kind of through their their burnout stories, I see that. So it's it's not the norm for people to, most people who, who I actually talk to will tell me outright, I like my organization or I like the people who I work with, or there's aspects of this work that I really, really like, and I don't want to leave, but it's sort of, they're kind of stuck almost in a catch 22, a motivational catch 22. Like, how do I deal with the burnout and unwind it? But then I still want to stay and preserve that ability to do good work. And so we, we talk through what that looks like. And the answer is different for everybody because everybody's circumstances, you know, are certainly different. So I would say, and I've I've certainly talked with folks who have left their organization, but pivoting in that way takes a lot of intentionality. And so that's just not where most people end up. Paul, we have a podcast tradition where we briefly break away from the discussion and we transition into what we call the heartbeat round. And what I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions about your life philosophy and influences and have you answer each one in a quick, instinctive answer In other words, in a heartbeat. 
Are you ready to play? I am. One thing this past year has taught you. Life is short. Trait you admire most in other people. Authenticity. A ritual or practice you rely on most to support your mental health. Exercise, exercise, exercise. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Courage and kindness. How would you like to be remembered? I would love to be remembered as Lucy's mom. She, that's my daughter's name, Lucy. Very cool. What should be required reading for every human being? Anything that Brene Brown writes. The greatest gift you can give yourself? Grace. The greatest gift we can give others? Your time. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Being more assertive in how I communicate with people about specific challenges. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. That the Packers are going to win another Super Bowl. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, <laughs> Colbert's. A subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. The connection piece that we talked about in loneliness. Oh, good. The emotion that does most of us the most harm. Jealousy. And one lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Back to where I started, that life is short. You know what, Paula? I've done this probably close to 70 times, and it's called the heartbeat round with the intention of it being quick answers, and almost no one ever gives me quick, concise answers, but you just <laughs> did. So take some pride in that. That was like, I'm like, wow, she's she's really doing this. So, um, and I, of course, you know, have no discipline, allow people to do whatever they want to do, but you nailed it. So thank you very much. You're so welcome. I have one final question before I let you go. It has to do, my audience is going to go, what? But I just thought this was so cool that I had to ask you. So it's a team building exercise that you described in your book. And let me set it up for my audience. So it's called the Spaghetti Tower Marshmallow Challenge. Teams of four people get 20 sticks of dried spaghetti, one yard of string, one yard of tape, and one marshmallow. They have 18 minutes to build the tallest freestanding tower possible. And the one rule is the marshmallow has to go on the top. This experiment, as you write in your book, has been done so many times that there's now a ton of data on it. And you say that most teams never produce a tower that can stand on its own. But the group of people who routinely outperform all others are kindergartners. <laughs> so when I was reading this, I was like, well, what did they know? <laughs> like, what, what do they know that I don't know? So leave us with an understanding of the mindset that these little kids brought to the challenge and even how adopting it might lessen our chances of burning out. It was so fascinating to me. And, you know, interestingly, the teams that tended to do worse were like the business students, like the people who had the pure knowledge of how teams should, in theory, function and all the theory behind it were drastically worse. And so to be fair and to be honest, the team that literally did the best consistently were architects and engineers. But in second place, very close behind them were the kindergartners. And so it was for a number of reasons, but mainly because they just got in and started to try stuff out, right? Whenever I run this exercise and I see it, you got 18 minutes. You can't theorize and strategize for 14 minutes and expect to build a tower. And that's where most people want to do. So, yes, you have to talk about some stuff and maybe plan a little bit of a strategy. But most teams spend way too much time in that. Instead of just trying it out, get your hands dirty, get a little messy, figure it out. Kindergartners, and I see this now very clearly. My daughter is five. And how she interacts with her classmates and things like that. Whenever they're trying to build something, it's this constant state of like, no, you did that wrong. And 
here, try this. And, and there's no ego involved. Nobody is appointing themselves like the head of Spaghetti <laughs> Marshmallow Challenge Project and you will listen to me. And nobody gets defensive, right? They just say, wait, that didn't work. Try something else. And then they try something else. And it's this messy kind of process that helps them just very quickly end up with a something at least to be able to produce. And so that's where most professionals go wrong. There's a lot of defensiveness. There's a lot of ego. You should listen to me too long to strategize, things like that. Ego, any dimension of it, it sure gets in the way of doing good work a lot of the time. So yes. I'm really glad I asked you the question. It's very, very cool. Now I'm hoping, of course, to be assigned this somewhere in my life so I, I have the solution already. <laughs> yeah. But Paula, thank you so very much. This has been invaluable, wonderful discussion, fantastic insight. You packed a lot of punch in your answers. And on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. This was fantastic. I feel like we could have talked for like four more hours. So thank you. I know. It always feels like that to me. And then I get all disappointed when it's over. But always leave wanting more. I think that's the Hollywood mantra. So uh, that's right. we'll feel good about that. So thank you very, very much. This was a delight. I just think the topic is so timely. You're going to do great. And I appreciate you coming on. That's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Best to you, Paula. Bye-bye. Bye. we go i'd like to thank you again for listening sincerely and for telling your friends about us thanks to you we have an audience in 153 of the 194 countries in the world and of course we dream of reaching them all 41 left to go and it sure seems like live conferences and meetings will not resume until 2022 so please keep me in mind as a virtual keynote speaker for your team's next meeting this year I've said it many times before, but virtual events can be hugely effective. And the number of people who can listen in, obviously, is entirely unlimited for the same amount of money. I, of course, want to thank my wonderful team, Mr. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Gary Finnessy, Randy Yant, and my producer and editor, Eric Oz. And of course, I can't say goodbye without leaving you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow, and they will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley. Thank you again for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.